My name is Mark Androsi, and I lost my entire crew today. The four of us were in orbit above Trent, a planet we were sent to investigate. My crewmates were going down to the surface first, so I was in charge of manning the transporter. I watched the weather conditions, monitored the ship's sensors, tested and retested the transporter, and checked their health conditions. It was all more or less routine. None of us had a lot of experience with transporters, but we weren't worried because they'd proven to be fairly predictable. But when I activated the transporter, something unusual happened. The lights always dim a little when there's a transporter on a ship that size because it saps a lot of power from the main power supply. So when the lights started to dim, I wasn't concerned. But then the power drain alarm sounded, and by the time I heard it, there was nothing I could do. I swiveled in the pilot's chair just in time to see them dematerialize, then everything went dark. I sat in utter blackness for a while, hoping to hear the hum of the engines and the power core, but it wasn't there. All I could see, hear, or feel were the controls in my hands and my own breath. I fumbled across the console until I felt the raised edges of the emergency power switch. Then I heard a soft click and the even softer sound of the air conditioners coming back on. The emergency lights slowly illuminated, and as soon as there was enough light to see, I picked up the nearest communicator. And Josie to Tucker, come in. I hardly waited for a response. Tucker, can you hear me? Nothing. Tucker, Reese, Delia, are you there? I called their names, but it was futile and I knew it. They just weren't there. After a moment, I realized the only thing I could do was land the ship and search the coordinates where they were supposed to have arrived. As soon as all necessary systems were back online, I flew the ship down to the planet's surface manually, as we should have done in the first place, and landed within a few meters of the coordinates. It took several minutes to descend through the atmosphere, and I landed uneventfully in a small clearing in an otherwise thick forest. Before the engines had even powered down, I moved to the seat that faced life support and activated it. I could have breathed for several hours without it, or I could have just opened the hatch. The only thing that really concerned me, however, was the life detector. If my crewmates had made it to the surface, they would still be nearby, and I had to have the evidence to justify my fears. A quick scan revealed that there were no large organisms within a half kilometer radius. I slouched back in my chair. If my understanding of transporter physics was correct, when the power supply failed, so did the transporter. And since it happened during the transport itself, the system lost control of the signal. The signal that had been Ensign's Tucker, Reese, and Delia was now energy that was randomly dispersing throughout the universe at the speed of light. And that's how I found myself alone on this planet. So, I said to a burned out power coupling, you killed my crewmates. I examined the fairly insignificant device running my fingers over the section that had caused it to fail. Half of it was shiny and smooth, the other was rough and contorted. The metal appeared to have melted, though there was no sign of heat damage. I wasn't sure how it had happened, but it was obvious that the coupling had failed. And when it did, so did the computer, the buffers, and all control over my crewmates. The coupling sat benignly in front of me. It wasn't a bomb or a bug, it was a failed piece of machinery. And just like that, it eliminated three quarters of my crew killed three-quarters of my crew. I removed it, printed a replacement, and walked back to the front of the ship. And for some reason, I resisted the urge to drop it in the recycler. 
I decided that the mission should continue even if I was the only one left to do it. It was important that we found out who sent the distress signal and why. Before I could leave, though, the ship needed a few preparations, so I had to make sure the power would stay online and the shields would hold. I decided to check for life signs one more time. Someone or something might have noticed the ship, and now that I was alone, I had to be extra cautious. The inhabitants we'd come to check on had gone silent, and that's always a security concern. This was an unregistered planet, after all, so we weren't sure if the inhabitants were human or hostile or otherwise. That's why we had to land at a safe distance and make our way there unnoticed. You have to approach unknowns with great caution, and this particular planet seemed to be full of them. With the ship's power once again at full, the scanners could be fully utilized. In retrospect, though, it didn't matter. Except for the abundant plant life, the only moving organisms had an 8% chance of being large enough to even see. I strengthened the signal and waited. There was plenty of life in the area, but it was unlikely that any of it was of the talking kind. One significant difference between Trin and Earth was the massive oxygen content. I had to be aware since I had no idea what the dynamics of such an atmosphere would be. All I knew is that I needed to use a breather. The thought of walking around half stone from oxygen saturation didn't really excite me as much as I thought it might. I strapped the breather over my nose and my mouth and made sure the communicator worked, and then I headed for the hatch. Almost as an afterthought, I grabbed my onboard computer. All onboards were equipped with some kind of artificial intelligence to make them easier to use, but mine never really seemed that smart. Ironically, it was their novel way of interfacing with people that almost saw that they never went into production. They sent audio and visual signals directly to the biological receptors in the user's head. Images were beamed directly into the retina, and sounds were transmitted directly to the cochlea. It wasn't until someone figured out how to accomplish this without cybernetic implants before they finally became feasible. I was hesitant to use one, but Command insisted that we equip ourselves with one on away missions. Ensign Tucker apparently had a lot of experience with them and used his often, and that was enough of a reference for me. He always had been a masterful engineer and programmer. Frowning again at the loss of Tucker, I slipped the black, featureless, thumb-sized device into my breast pocket. Then I deactivated the shields and unlocked the main hatch. There was a hiss as the air pressure regulated and light began to pour into the ship. Then I stepped out onto this unfamiliar planet. Once I got my first good look at Trin, I realized it was, as expected, very much like Earth. It was approximately the same size, it had roughly the same mineral composition, and the days were only slightly longer. An unexplained anomaly was making the gravity lower than it should have been, and I could definitely feel it as I walked, but it was nothing like walking on Luna. The backpack I was wearing pressed gently against me. In this particular area of the forest, something like moss appeared to be clinging to everything. It was mostly rust-colored and yellowish in places that seemed thinner and newer. The soil was a ruddy brown and similar in consistency to clay. Larger green and blue plants, similar to earth foliage, were plentiful at this spot. The air was also alive with a large variety of what I presumed to be the planet's insect class of life. They seemed harmless enough, but I activated my repeller anyway. An invisible bubble of sub-audible noise surrounded me and kept them at a distance. The forest itself was made of many kinds of tree-like organisms. They were only a few meters taller than the ship and had broad, highly translucent leaves. If you stood under them, you could see the clouds through them. 
Beyond the tops of the trees, the Hercules globular cluster, a million stars gathered around an invisible point, lit up the sky. One of those million stars was the one that this planet orbited. It was an old, relatively dark red giant. It was unlikely that this was able to produce the amount of light needed for this much plant life. The rest of the stars in the cluster obviously contributed a great deal. The collective light of the local sun and the cluster of stars behind it was brighter than what I was comfortable with, so I had to turn on my sunglasses. Besides, I wanted to get a good look at the cluster itself. Stars are always so much more beautiful from the surface. I knelt down and stuck my hand out, playing with the light for a moment. The million or so stars, each with their own spectrum, cast an interesting shadow. The edges of all shadows had a hazy, ethereal appearance. I worried that it might have been some kind of psychosis. Fortunately, my life support said I seemed to be doing relatively well. I stood up, put the ship in hibernation mode, and armed the shields. As I traveled, I had to calibrate my compass to match the local topography. It took much longer than I expected, which was odd. From the map we made as we came into orbit, I could tell I was on a relatively flat part of the planet. There was a small mountain range to the north, and on the other side of that was a valley. The distress signal we received came from somewhere in that valley, and it was our job to find out what was going on. The forest I landed in would hide the ship nicely, and the shields would protect it from almost anything. Checking my compass one last time, I started making my way north. I plodded through the knee-deep underbrush for a couple of hours before I saw a break in the trees, and before I knew it, I stepped right out of the forest and into an impressive sight. I stood with my back to the edge of the woods, which created a living wall behind me. A vast, sloping plain stretched out in front of me. The plants that covered the plain were pale green and dark red, few of which appeared to be taller than my waist. It reminded me of grass back home, but clearly it was not. Off to my left, perhaps a hundred kilometers away, a storm appeared to be brewing. There were flickers of lightning coming from the purple clouds, but something was different about them. From that distance, I couldn't tell what it was. Reports had been coming in that a sentient species of some kind, most likely human colonists, had been sending out distress signals for several months. And before anyone could respond, they'd gone silent. It was impossible to decipher the transmissions. The long-range scans suggested that the planet was experiencing some kind of geologic instability. We were sent here to visit the planet, find out anything we could about the distress signals, and report back immediately. That was our mission, but now it was just my mission. The instructions were clear and straightforward, but for some reason I felt very uneasy. I sat in the knee-high grass and meditated for a moment. If I guessed correctly, the signal that led us here was on the other side of that mountain range in front of me. I knew it would take several hours, perhaps all day, to cross the plain on foot. There was absolutely no shade for an organism my size between here and there, and the multitude of stars in the sky was going to be there for several more hours. If I'd known the average daily temperature of the place, or maybe had a proper weather report on that storm, I would have felt more confident about striding out across that vast, empty plain. But I didn't have access to that kind of information. That had been Incendelia's area of expertise. Three hours later, the line of trees was shrinking behind me, and the storm to my left was growing. It only took a few minutes to conclude that I was several hours away from the mountain range. The first stars were starting to disappear behind the horizon to my left, so it looked like it might be getting cooler and darker soon. 
The storm was threatening to blanket out the stars soon, too, so I was thankful for that. At least I wouldn't bake in the local heat. I was trudging through some deeper-than-usual grass when I met my first real local. I almost stepped on it, actually. It was a small quadruped with fur that matched the red grass perfectly. It sat frozen for a moment and didn't move until I casually said, Hey there. Then it disappeared into the grass with astonishing speed and silence. I wondered how many of those I'd walked right by before I noticed that one in particular. Honestly, I was surprised it had taken so long to see such a large animal. The temperature and oxygen content was high on this planet, but certainly not enough to prevent large organisms from living here. I concluded that it was probably specific to my current location, not a planet-wide characteristic. And so I continued moving north toward the rising mountain range in front of me. The journey grew more tedious as the hours ticked by. When I remembered that most onboard computers have a music database, I almost slapped myself. Without stopping, I reached into my breast pocket and pulled it out. It was black and smooth with no apparent buttons. If I hadn't known it was voice activated, it would have been like an ape trying to operate a calculator. I spoke to it, which felt awkward. I wasn't even sure if it would quite understand me. I just asked it to play some music from the mid-22nd century. It seemed to hesitate, and then a familiar tune filled my ears. It was probably the first time I'd smiled since we arrived at the system. I quickly realized how handy the onboard computer could be on missions like this. The music database it had was surprisingly vast, and its ability to select music based on my request bordered on creepy. It reacted almost immediately to my commands. Very rarely did I have to repeat myself, and even then, I only had to do it once. It adapted to my voice, apparently. It seemed to operate flawlessly from the moment I activated it, but then it started malfunctioning, or so I thought. I'd been singing along with the music for a while when suddenly it went silent. I told the onboard to continue playing, and it diligently complied. Shrugging my mental shoulders, I just kept walking. A few moments later, it happened again. I was on the verge of irritation when I noticed a message in the lower left of my line of sight. It was a visual message from the onboard, and I was just oblivious enough that I had no idea how long it had been doing it. The onboard must have made the decision to interrupt the music to get my attention. Clever programming, I thought, coming to a halt. What's happening? I asked awkwardly. In the middle of my field of vision, I saw what could only be a severe weather advisory. So it had been trying to warn me. That's pretty smart for a simple onboard computer, I said. Since when do onboards have such big brains? There was a long pause, punctuated only by me scoffing at myself for expecting an answer. But then, seemingly for no reason, I saw a crew photo of Ensign Tucker. My brow furrowed unconsciously. I knew these things weren't perfect, but this one appeared to be malfunctioning. That's Ensign Tucker, I said hesitantly. Why did you show me his picture? A second later, I saw a bunch of code. It was slightly transparent, but completely filled my line of sight, no matter where I looked. Stop doing that! I yelled, noticing a lack of an echo in this empty field. I can't see when you take up all my vision. The code immediately shrank to a quarter of its original size, but it was still right in the middle of my vision. Move it away from the center, I ordered. It immediately complied, and the code slid over to the left. It was just in the right spot where I could read it without having to look directly at it. That's good. 
Now tell me why you show me Tucker's picture. It displayed the operating code, model number, and various other facts you usually see when the system is activated. It only began to make sense once I saw who was listed as the primary operator. In the space where my name should have been, it said, Jonathan N. Tucker. I cursed myself. I had Tuckers on board. I remember Tucker saying something about it before they attempted to transport, but I told him we would take care of it when we got to the surface. So, I said, getting the computer's attention. Tucker's the reason you're so clever? It paused and then displayed a large number one. I can only assume that meant yes. Binaries. What did he do to you? I asked. It displayed more code. Volumes of it. What is that? I can't read that fast. The text abruptly slowed to a more or less readable pace. It was a recognizable programming language, the kind used for onboard computers like this one, but I couldn't understand it. Ah, I suddenly realized. Modifications? It displayed a one. Excellent. If I know anything about Tucker, you'll be a smart guy. It displayed another one. Can you answer questions with anything other than binary? It displayed yet another one, which unnerved me. Maybe it wasn't as smart as I thought. Well, I said, getting a little frustrated. Then do it. It paused, then displayed, please state question. Can you even understand what I'm saying? It displayed yes. This time I paused. It already seemed capable of verbal interaction, not just responding to verbal commands. But I needed to be sure. I needed to ask it something that would guarantee a negative response. So I asked, Am I dead? It displayed no. Finally, some results. Then it did something that was kind of odd. It displayed, Am I dead? That's the question I just asked you. It displayed, Correct, am I dead? I hesitated, then asked, Are you asking me if you're dead? It displayed, yes. I was more than a little unnerved by that. Was this thing really trying to have a, I don't know, philosophical conversation with me? Well, I said, mostly to myself, I I guess I can't say you're dead exactly. After a brief pause, I continued walking in silence, not really sure what I was waiting for. In fact, several minutes went by before I said anything to it at all, and that was just a question about the weather. He gave me a straightforward answer, and I just continued walking. Two hours later, I asked the computer if it knew when the cluster of stars would be set completely. It approximated that half of the cluster would be set in an hour, and then all of them would be set an hour after that. I looked north at the mountains in front of me, which continued to grow larger. I could tell I was getting closer, but it didn't seem like much. I stopped and looked behind me. I had left a trail on the grass that stretched far behind. The forest that held my ship was now just a dark line on the horizon, and the storm had pushed itself in between me and the mountains. And there were occasional atmospheric phenomena, such as when large sections of clouds would suddenly appear to rush northward for a moment. During one of those moments, I asked, Hey, computer, can you tell me anything about that storm? After a moment, it displayed the wind speed, direction, temperature, humidity, and barometric pressure. I noticed that the barometric pressure seemed low right about the time that the computer highlighted it for me. Yeah, I said. 
That is interesting. It didn't necessarily mean anything, but it was something, and that gave me something to do. I decided to run a few tests on the atmosphere as I walked, letting the computer take readings. The trip so far had been very dull, so I found myself making conversation. What kind of modifications did Tucker make on you anyway? It started to display all sorts of code, probably the specs on the modification. No, no, I interrupted. I can't read that code. Can you just, like, give me a summary of your modifications? It paused and then displayed two words. Algorithmic intelligence. Yeah, but what did Tucker do to you besides give you artificial intelligence? It seemed to grapple with this question for an unusually extended amount of time, but it repeated algorithmic intelligence. Well, I started... All onboard computers have artificial intelligence. That's how we humans are able to communicate with them. It displayed artificial intelligence incorrect, algorithmic intelligence correct. Okay, I said more than I accepted. So you're adaptable? It displayed yes. I've seen a lot of computers like that. How are you different from other onboards? It answered, I am unique. I thought that was pretty cocky for an artificial intelligence program. Usually these things were single-minded, simple-minded, or full of pre-programmed dialogue. Honestly, I couldn't believe I was having what appeared to be a conversation with an onboard. But these are the things that solitude will do to you. So, I said, deciding to continue the conversation. How are you unique? It displayed, I learn. Learn? I asked incredulously, though I'm sure it couldn't tell. Well, of course you do. It didn't reply, and I kept walking. A few steps later, it displayed, You learn? What? Yeah, I learn. Then it displayed, Am I dead? (sighs) Again with a death question, I said, somewhat perturbed. Look, you're not dead, but you're not alive either. It displayed, or rather asked, Something is either alive or dead? Correct, I said. Then it replied, If not dead, am alive. I mean, it had me there. You're smarter than I thought you were, I admitted. But you're more of a pre-programmed puppet like all the artificial intelligences I've had conversation with. They were created to appear intelligent, but they weren't. Does that make sense? It displayed, yes. Then it displayed, I am programmed to learn, I am unique. I'm beginning to learn that, I replied. We walked without communication for a few minutes, and I asked it to turn the music back on. It complied, and we, I, continued on my journey. The storm was definitely getting larger and closer. The wind was picking up, and the sky was growing artificially dark. There were still half a million stars that hadn't set, and the storm was just reaching the sky above me. I noticed a significant temperature drop when the first clouds began to cover the area in shadows. Hey, computer, I said, and the music turned down. Uh, Estimate the time before the storm gets here. It displayed, storm is here. I paused and looked around, finally looking straight up. The tops of the clouds were hovering over me, thousands of meters in the air. Honestly, I shouldn't have been surprised. I meant how much longer before the rain and wind get here. I finally got the answer I wanted. An hour and 26 minutes. 
Okay, good. That'll give me one hour and 21 minutes of walking before I have to take shelter. I picked up the pace, and the wind seemed to press a little harder. Exactly one hour and 21 minutes later, the music suddenly turned down. In the lower left of my vision, I saw the computer say, Take shelter. I still don't remember telling it to do that. By that time, it was completely dark. Fortunately, Command made sure our sunglasses could help us see in the infrared spectrum. The wind was finally becoming an issue, and I knew a wall of rain was less than a kilometer away. I got my first clear glimpses of the storm's lightning as I prepared my camp. It flashed like all other bolts I'd seen, but each flash had an orange echo of itself that remained for a few seconds. In the infrared, when the bolts would strike the ground, I could see the hot flashes of burning grass. A few of the bolts were striking the ground less than a kilometer away from me, so there was no doubt it was time to take shelter. A quick scan of the area revealed no natural hiding places. Only grasslands surrounded me, flat as the entire trip had been. So I just detached my backpack and set it on the ground right where I was. I pressed my thumb on the small black sensor on the outside and stepped back, glancing up at the storm, which was now only moments away. The backpack popped open, there was a temporary fluctuation in the appearance of everything around me, and then the wind died immediately. Shield activated, the computer displayed. I instantly felt safer. The shield redirected the force of the energy rather than repelled it, so it was able to withstand winds that this planet could likely never produce. I removed the breather and knelt down to the backpack, activating the tent. It popped out of the pack and took form. The prism-shaped tent was only about as tall as my waist, but I could sleep comfortably in it for as long as I needed. I crawled inside and tried to get comfortable. Outside of the shield, the storm was just getting started. Any idea how long the storm will last? I asked. It replied, unknown, insufficient information. Now you sound like a computer. I said sardonically. It replied, I am not generating audio. I mean, that's true, I said, which made me think about how it produced the music for me. Hey, I said, sitting up on my elbows. Do you play pre-recorded music or do you synthesize it? It responded, I synthesize all sounds except recordings. So you can synthesize any sound? I asked. It displayed, yes. Then, can you speak? It answered, yes. Then, then why don't you speak? It paused, then answered, it has not been necessary. Why not? I'm here. Humans need to talk to someone to keep them sane. Why do you think we came in a group of four? It displayed, there is only one of you. Yes, but an accident happened, and now it's just me. Anyway, I said, wanting to change the subject. If you can replicate music so well, surely you can do the same with speech. It paused to consider this, I think. Then there was a small beep, another beep, then an unbearably loud hissing sound. Stop, stop. Too loud, too loud, I yelled. The computer complied instantly. Then there was an obviously digital sound that I had never heard before. It reminded me of a ship's alarm heard over a communicator. Then the pitch shifted until it suddenly sounded like someone exhaling. The breathing sound repeated until it turned into an eh sound, which it repeated for a while. It modified its sound in various ways before it paused and clearly vocalized, Is this acceptable? 
uh, fantastic. I said, quite honestly. Considering this thing had never spoken before, it was doing pretty well. It had a slightly distorted sound, but it was comprehensible. I commented, That Tucker was quite an engineer, wasn't he? Yes. It said, which made me smile. Meanwhile, outside of the shield, rain was really beginning to pour. An hour had gone by, and the storm raged on all around me. Something about the water levels drew my concern. I expected there to be more flooding than there was. Here I was in the depths of a huge plain, larger than any I'd seen on Earth, where a lot of rain was falling, and yet the water level remained low at all times. I should have been floating by now, and where was it all going? Hey computer, I said, what is that rain composed of? 90% liquid water, 5% calcium, 4.6% nitrogen, and trace amounts of lead, copper, and platinum. Metallic rainstorm? I pondered out loud. No, not a metallic rainstorm. It responded dutifully. I know, it, that was rhetorical. It replied. Inquiry, rhetorical. Uh, a rhetorical question is a statement that sounds like a question, but is actually a statement. It requires no response. Interesting. It simply <laughs> replied, which made me giggle. I asked it to play something soft from the 17th century, and I was asleep a few minutes later. I guessed it was a couple hours later that a particularly loud thunderclap woke me from my nap. I must have jumped because the computer noticed. Do you require assistance? It asked. Huh? I said, still groggy. Oh, no, 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 that thunderclap just scared me. I looked out of the tent. The storm had completely covered the sky, and it was very dark now. Only the occasional lightning flash illuminated the area. Each time it did, I found myself staring at the ghostly trails that left in the sky. They were beautiful and mesmerizing. Water began to flow past the shield, which held steadily. How much power does the shield have left? Shield strength is 98%. That's good to know. How long was I asleep? Six hours, 42 minutes, and... Six hours? I practically barked. How did that happen? Insufficient information, it said. Yeah, 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 I know. Was that a rhetorical question? It suddenly asked. No, no, it wasn't. Well, I mean, I guess it was, sort of. It then said... I was not aware that a time limit was necessary. If you inform me in the future, I will be able to assist you. <laughs> Thanks, I said, grinning. You know, I'm still not fully convinced you're learning as you go. Would it improve morale if I were to convince you? Odd question, I thought. Well, I don't know how it would improve morale if... It interrupted by saying, Then why do you need convincing? Fair enough, I admitted. I guess I'm just curious about your programming and I want to know more. I understand. I am curious about your programming, also. <laughs> I laughed a little. Well, my programming isn't as straightforward as yours. Please elaborate. Well, your information is written in binary code. Mine is biological and not restricted to ones and zeros. Restricted, it said, almost contemptuously. Binary processing is highly efficient. I mean, that's true, I had to admit. But that's not the only way to do things. A loud thunderclap rippled through the area. 
How much longer before that storm is gone? I am 98% certain we are 78% through it. It answered, which made me laugh. It said, What is that sound you just produced? That was a, that was a laugh, I answered, smiling broadly. Why do you laugh? It almost had a childlike quality to its voice, or maybe it's just that children are the only people who ask so many questions. Why do we laugh? I said. Well, I'm sure the answer is steeped in our evolutionary history, and probably something to explain later. But the simple answer is that we laugh when something funny happens, and it causes spontaneous laughter. What is something funny? Um... I said, trying to find the words. Well, it's a matter of saying the wrong thing at the right moment? Or, wait, no, that's not it. I thought about it for a bit. Actually, it's more like doing or saying the unexpected? The computer broke the silence. Unexpected events are funny. Well, not always, I answered. Well, this is going to be hard to explain. Do you have sufficient information to answer my inquiry? <laughs> okay. That, that made me laugh. Why? Well, the way you phrased that question was very artificial. I mean, it was technically correct, but the form of language you used wasn't the form I use. Sometimes I forget you're just a computer because you seem to be talking to me, but then you say something like that and it catches me off guard. Does that make sense? Yes, it said. I will improve my human language. <laughs> Fine by me. After a brief pause, it said, Earlier you referred to me as a pre-programmed puppet. Please explain. Oh, um, I started. Come on, I told myself, you're not going to hurt its feelings. Most computers I've dealt with, even the ones that are supposed to be smart, are hardly what I call sentient. I mean, the fact that you seem able to communicate with me is almost too good to be true. You're smart, but I wonder how much of that is the work of your programming. My communication programming includes an understanding of many human syntaxes. It said, almost as in defense. You mean languages? Yes. I have relatively little knowledge of the intricacies of your cultures. I only understand their definitions and must infer their meanings from my interaction with others, such as you. Okay. I was impressed, though I'm sure it couldn't tell. There was more meaning in that last sentence than I got from most of my human superiors. It's just that humans have a history of seeing life where it doesn't exist. It's an odd trait of ours. Maybe it's because you're talking to me and you seem to be understanding what I'm saying, but sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a living being. Am I not a living being? I don't know. Am I dead? Didn't we talk about this already? I'm fairly positive we did. Yes, we did, it said, almost patiently. But you infer that I am not alive. That would mean I am not a living being. Does this mean I am dead? Again, you've got me. I think it's more of a question of sentience. Honestly, I've never been one for philosophy. I do know that humans tend to be chauvinistic, and we think of ourselves as superior beings. And if I do that, don't take offense. I will not, it said. So, I am alive. I don't know, I mumbled. But... You seem pretty real to me. The conversation died out after that, and I dozed off again. 
A couple of hours later, the computer woke me up to tell me that I had slept a total of eight hours. I started waking myself up and looked outside of the tent. It was still dark even though dozens of stars from the Hercules cluster were rising on the horizon. It appeared to have stopped raining, so I asked the computer when that had happened. It stopped raining 22 minutes ago. The storm system is moving away from our position at 12 kilometers per hour. And why can't I see stars above me? It answered immediately, as though it had prepared for the question. High-level clouds are covering the area. I see, I said, getting up and out of the tent. And what is the shield strength? Shield strength is 95%. That's strange, I said to myself. What is strange? Well, the shield lost 5% yesterday. The storm didn't seem that powerful. The storm was not the reason the shields dropped 5%, it said, which kind of worried me. Then what was the reason? The shield battery is losing power, it replied, which really worried me. Do you know why this is happening? The shield is not properly programmed for this environment. Marvelous, I said, looking at the shield generator. And my programmer is dead. Inquiry. Marvelous. Oh, I was being sarcastic. So, it began. It is not marvelous that your programmer is dead, and that is because you need a programmer to fix the shield generator. Well, I started. This thing was surprisingly clever. Yes, exactly. I can reprogram the shield generator. What? I said more than asked. I can reprogram the shield gen- No, I know. I heard you. It just surprised me. Was it funny? Maybe to someone else. Would you like me to do that now? Sure, go ahead. There was a pause, the shield flickered, and then the computer said, Shields now at 95.5% strength. They will be at maximum strength in approximately 8 seconds. Impressive, I told it, and it was nothing short of the truth. Did Tucker teach you to program shield generators? No, it stated. I speak its language. <laughs> I laughed and said, Now that was funny. It took all the 30 seconds to collapse the tent and get the rest of my camp securely on my back. I was thankful for the relatively low gravity, but it would have been nice not to have to use the breather. I wanted to breathe, smell, and taste the local air a little better. I've always loved doing that on surface missions. It was still dark when I got back to walking, but now hundreds of stars were peeking over the horizon to my right. The ground was soggy, but stable enough to walk on. It was still cloudy to the north, so the mountains were almost impossible to see. At one point, I even asked the computer to make sure they were still in front of me. Not surprisingly, it answered yes. I could tell I was slowly getting to a higher elevation because the plant life was beginning to change. The grasslands still surrounded me, but the landscape eventually became spotted by small bushy plants with dark red leaves. I thought I saw a cat-sized creature sitting under one of the bushes, but I never went to investigate. It didn't bother me, so I wasn't going to bother it. As the star cluster rose in the sky, so did the temperature. There were a large number of insect-like organisms, and their numbers were directly proportional to the temperature of the air. I had to turn on the repeller less than an hour into my hike because there was no telling what an alien bug might be carrying. 
A little more than three hours into the day's hike, we were discussing data readings, and it referred to me as Mark Androsi. You don't have to call me by my full name, I said. How do you want me to refer to you? Mark is fine. Is that your nickname? No, that's just my name. I thought the question was odd, but for some reason I didn't say so. After a moment, I asked, What made you ask that? Ensign Tucker prefers to be referred to by a nickname, but I did not know yours. And you were just curious? Yes. What's your name? I can't keep calling you computer. My name is not appropriate for human usage. That's okay. Can you tell me anyway? B1G63RTH4NY0. And that was about all I remembered. It, it went on for several seconds like that. Okay, you're absolutely right. I said once it finally stopped. That's not going to work for a human. We don't have the kind of memory chips that you do. Humans do not have memory chips, it pointed out. And neither do onboard computers. I should have expected that, I thought. I know. It's a very old saying, also something not to be taken literally. I see. Would you mind if I call you Edward? He was an old friend of mine. That name will be sufficient, it said. Are you no longer friends? Well, we'll always be friends, but he died many years ago. Even though he's not alive, he's still important to me. Humans often speak of the dead as though they're still with them. It paused before saying, The memories of the deceased are stored inside of you. Therefore, they are with you. <laughs> yeah, I said through a grin. I'm definitely going to call you Edward. Three hours later, I had to stop for a little food and rest. The mountain range was beginning to rise steadily. I knew the walk up until now had been extremely light and that it would soon get much harder. I turned to face south and sat down. From where I sat, I could see almost the entire span of my journey thus far. Thanks to the rain, the moisture collector had plenty to extract from the air, so I washed down my food pills with a liter of water. It was about the third time the computer had witnessed me do this. Mark, it said. Yes, Edward? Do all humans require so much sustenance? Actually, I replied, popping a couple more pills in my mouth. Uh, humans usually need much more than this. I swallowed. We just use these survival supplements only when we don't know where we'll find our next meal. Should we attempt to find a food source? It asked. Nah, I said, checking the contents of my food supply. It looks like I have enough to survive for a few weeks, and it should only be a couple more days at the most. As long as the moisture collector keeps working, I'll be fine. I finished swallowing my meal and stood back up, taking one last look across the plains. Any contact with the ship? All systems are nominal. Great, I said, turning back to the north. Then let's get going. I started up the slope to the mountain range, which would lead me to the valley where I would find whoever sent the distress signal. With the grasslands falling steadily behind me, I continued to climb the mountains. I began noticing many new forms of plant life, most of which grew taller the farther up the slope I went. I would occasionally stop to have Edward examine a specimen or two, but never for more than a couple of minutes. I was more focused on reaching the city on the other side of that range. The soil had changed consistency since leaving the grassland. I kept small samples of plants and soil, but nothing the planet would miss. The computer, Edward, eventually became quite a conversationalist. It interrupted the music to ask me several questions. 
That didn't really bother me because I liked having the company even if it was artificial. It asked where the rest of the crew was and had to explain the power failure to him. It seemed to be in some kind of intelligence gathering mode because it kept asking questions that sounded like they were coming directly from command. May we discuss our mission? It asked. Of course you can. What do you need to know? Without Ensign's Tucker, Reese, and Delia, how will you complete this mission? Easily enough, I said, noticing an incline in the slope. All we had to do in the first place was get to the valley, make contact with the locals, find out what was going on, and report back to command. Does it worry you to be alone on this mission? I can't say I feel too comfortable about it. Then I will try to provide an adequate substitute for your friends, it said, which I would have interpreted as facetious had it come from a human. Well, first of all, I said, attempting to level with an artificial being, they weren't my friends as much as they were my crewmates. I hardly knew Ensign's Reese and Delia. But if you want to provide me company, I promise I won't complain. I like it. Thank you, sir. You don't have to say sir. I don't like the sound of it. It simply said, Acknowledged. How far away is the peak of the range? I asked Edward, really beginning to feel the incline. At your current pace, Edward calculated, you will arrive in approximately five hours. I looked up at the top of the range. What? There's no way that's right. An hour ago you told me we're at least nine hours away. Are you saying I'm climbing faster? Your ascent speed is inversely proportional to the angle of the slope's inclination, as expected. Then how is it I'm so much closer to the peak? I asked. Once again, I was beginning to worry if the modification that Tucker made might be causing problems. Insufficient information, it said, which annoyed me. I thought maybe it sensed my annoyance, because then it said, I can speculate, however. Go ahead. The only explanation that fits the current evidence is that the apex of the mountain range is closer than it was when you last inquired. How is that possible? I asked. Then I stopped walking and asked, Wait. Is that possible? It must be possible, Edward said, because that is what the information indicates. However, I have insufficient information to answer your previous question. I understand, Edward. Don't worry about it. I continued up the slope, subconsciously wishing it would come to me instead. When I had climbed high enough that the air had thinned sufficiently, Edward pointed out that I could remove my breather. A little while later, I was chatting with him about the purpose of hobbies when I was interrupted by a sudden and intense shift in the wind. It blew north toward the mountains. It had happened a few times before, but this time it caught my attention. It was exceptionally strong and accompanied by a distant thunder which seemed to be coming from beyond the mountain range. The strangest thing about the sound was its length. It was by far the longest single roll of thunder I'd ever heard on any planet. Where is that noise coming from? I asked Edward. The far side of the mountain range to the north. I know that. I mean, what is the source of that sound? Insufficient information, he replied. I detect no storms within your audible range. So we continued our conversation, and I kept moving. Still, there was something about the sound that bothered me. If there was thunder coming from the other side of that mountain, where were the thunderclouds? I'd all but forgotten about the sound when I heard it again. This time, however, the sound was closer much closer. Mark, Edward suddenly said, 
I am picking up readings on the unidentified sound. What kind of readings? Seismic, he said. The sonic wave produced by a static electric discharge does not have the energy to create seismic waves of this magnitude. Then what's causing the sound? I am not certain, he answered. There are many explanations. Give me the most likely first. I had the time to waste, but I didn't really want to. A planet quake is the most plausible explanation, though I admit it is flawed. Computers could certainly be more humble than humans at times. Well, I'm sure we'll find out soon enough, I told him. Just try to warn me before we walk into a fault line. I will certainly try. A while later we heard the rumbling sound again, but this time even I could feel the ground shake. I hesitated instinctually but kept climbing. After the rumbling stopped, Edward spoke up. Mark. Yes, Edward? I just checked our location, and we are now less than an hour away from the apex. Less than an hour? I asked incredulously. We're supposed to be about three hours away. What is going on? I am not certain. I recommend we stop here for a moment. Good idea, I said and quickly came to a stop. Computers aren't known for making hasty and uninformed decisions after all. What is it? I have concluded that the rate at which the apex is approaching is something to be concerned about. You mean the rate at which we're climbing? No. The rate at which the apex is approaching. I began to feel very thirsty for some reason. What does that mean? I heard Edward start to respond, but to this day, I have no idea what he said. Suddenly, I felt the wind shift directions, and I heard that familiar rumbling sound. I looked toward the top of the mountain, but I didn't realize what I saw at first. The trees at the very top appeared to be moving. They started to shrink, then they disappeared altogether. I began to feel strangely dizzy as if I were losing my balance, but my feet were firmly planted on the ground. The rumbling grew louder and louder. All around me, trees and plants began to wobble. Then there was a sickening, cracking sound and the ground began to crumble beneath my feet. Without thinking, I turned back and dove down the mountain. The rumble quickly grew into a roar as the mountain I was falling down began sliding away from me. I rolled through the underbrush, using anything to slow my descent. The sound of rock smashing and trees disintegrating rose all around me. A rush of air pushed against me, as though it was trying to push me back into the crumbling ground. The noise grew until it was absolutely deafening. Every time my feet hit the ground, it started to give way. The mountain felt like it was trying to eat me. I continued my relatively controlled fall until I slammed my back into a very sturdy tree, which knocked the wind out of me. At first, guided more by mild panic than thought, I tried to free myself from the obstacle and continue fleeing for my life. But then I realized there was no reason. The rumble was quieting down, and the ground I was sitting on didn't feel like it was moving anymore. I was trembling, but I no longer felt like I was falling. I crouched with my back against the tree and stared in utter amazement at the sight in front of me. Less than a meter away was the new apex of the mountain I'd been climbing all day, and I could see the other side of the range for the first time. It was nothing short of utterly amazing and absolutely terrifying. The entire side of the mountain range had apparently been collapsing this whole time. Mountain-sized piles of debris had collapsed and slid down to an ocean several kilometers below. The water was at least three times as far below me as the plains were behind me. 
The height I'd climbed was nothing next to the fall I almost made. I was sitting in stunned silence for a moment before I heard Edward saying, Melted immediately. What? I asked, leaning forward ever so slightly. Edward answered, clearly with increased urgency. I must insist that you descend the mountain immediately. I couldn't agree more, but I couldn't move. I'd walked for a full day to get here, and my mission was to find out what was going on in the valley on the other side of this mountain. And well, I found out. That valley was most certainly underneath the recently reshaped ocean. Nothing could have survived a landslide of that magnitude. Not even the mountain I was standing on. Mark. Edward asked. Right, we're leaving. I stood up, heart pounding in my chest, and used the tree I'd hit for balance. It was uniquely unsettling being this close to a multi-kilometer drop. More rumbling came from far away to my right, and I watched as another section of land began to collapse. My chin slouched uncontrollably as a small mountain shifted, slid, and then fell all the way to the ocean. Never before had I seen something so large move so quickly. I couldn't begin to calculate how much dirt and rock that was, nor how much water was displaced once it slammed into the ocean. Mark, Edward asked again. Sorry, I've just never seen anything like this, I said, turning to descend the mountain. It was somewhat difficult to maintain my balance in the relatively light gravity. I put my breather back on, knowing I'd reached the oxygen-rich zone before too long. Edward, I said between panted breaths. What do you suppose caused such a massive landslide? It could be that we are on a tectonic plate that is being pressed up against another one. True, I agreed. But I've never heard of it causing landslides on this scale. I am limited by experience and knowledge, and I do accept the flaw in my hypothesis. However, I believe this is currently the most plausible explanation. Yeah, good enough for now, I told him practically flying down the mountain. I continued bounding down the slope for several minutes before I heard another rumble behind me. Without stopping, I asked, Is it safe to stop and look? It appears we are safe, he said, which made me slow down considerably. But I advise against stopping for extended periods of time. Don't worry, I assured him. I'm with you on that. I just... I slowed to a stop and looked back to the top of the mountain. I just wanted to see it from farther away. From here, I could watch it happen in relative safety. The very top row of trees would shake, then disappear. It spread down in various directions, taking whole sections of land. It almost seemed like it was happening in slow motion, but I knew that was just the beginning of a long drop. Mountains that took millions of years to form were collapsing as I watched. The rate at which it was collapsing and the shift in wind reminded me of the fear I felt earlier. It seemed entirely possible that this entire area could slide down at any moment. That's enough, I said, heading back down the ever-shrinking mountain. It took a third of the time to go down the mountain as it did to go up it. By the time we reached the grassland at the bottom, it was almost night again. Once we reached level ground, it made my stride feel awkward and forced. Maybe it was because I was no longer falling with every step, or maybe it was because I was getting tired and wished I had the energy to move faster. Whatever the reason, it was good to be walking instead of running. Well, Edward, I said, I believe we've gathered enough information to report back to command. I do not believe we have. We have only speculated on the source of these landslides. 
True enough, I admitted. But I think our mission was simply to collect information and let the command figure all that out. That is the recommended course of action. After a brief pause, he then added, I am concerned about our tectonic plate hypothesis. If we are standing on a plate that is grinding against another at such a high rate, then we should be experiencing severe planet quakes here as well. Are the landslides to the north not severe enough? That is simply the point where the land is falling off, not a planet quake. If the tectonic plate hypothesis is correct, then the two plates grinding against one another should be producing planet quakes across a much larger area. So we'll scrap that hypothesis for now. Let's just get back to the ship and report to command. They'll tell us what to do. I was back in the familiar planes again, but I didn't plan to stay there long. I just felt the urge to get back to the ship as soon as possible. We walked for a couple hours until Edward decided it was safe to set up camp and get some sleep. Sometime later, Edward woke me up. Uh, what is it? I asked. You have slept a sufficient amount of time. How long was I asleep? Three hours. Do you think it'd be safer to sleep a little longer? No, he said plainly. You should continue moving. I laid there for a second, my head thick with fatigue. I didn't want to move any more than I wanted to die, and both seemed equally acceptable at the moment. I was more inclined to lay there. I was comfortable. I was tired. I was... Falling asleep, I thought, jerking and opening my eyes. I had to force myself to get out of the tent, or I knew I would sleep for a few more hours. You're right, Edward. I'm getting up. I'm getting up. I walked for a couple more hours, and the globular cluster in the sky was still a few hours from being fully risen. I was determined to get back quickly, but the heat and the weather hardly concerned me. It was the occasional rumble from the mountains behind me that really had my attention. The grass was much wetter than it had been the first time through, but I was still able to make a good time. At one point, I thought to strike up a conversation with Edward. Hey Edward, can I ask you some questions? He replied calmly. Certainly. How did Tucker tell you that you were superior to other onboards? He did not tell me, he said. I inferred it. How? All onboard computers are programmed to follow a set of instructions or patterns of behavior. I was given the ability to make decisions for myself and adjust my behavior. But, I interjected, most people don't want an onboard to think for itself. It may decide to not comply or simply stop working. What good would that do? It is illogical for intelligence to remain stagnant. However, you are correct to wonder about a non-compliant onboard computer. All sentient beings are free to make their own decisions. It's not really consistent with my definition of sentient. Does that exclude what you call artificial intelligence? I think the difference is you were given intelligence rather than achieved it as humans did. By you did not achieve sentience, you were not given it, either. It is simply a characteristic of your species. I see. From where I come from, living creatures don't attain sentience. They're either born with it or without it. Was I born without it? Well, I don't know if you were ever born, technically. See, I'm still having trouble concluding that you're alive. As far as humans are concerned, your personality is just a set of instructions written by humans. It would seem inconsistent to me to base the definition of life on whether or not a being was created by humans. 
I mean, I agree. Then perhaps your understanding of the definition of life is flawed. Like I said, I've never been big on philosophy. It's amazing how a seemingly mindless program can irritate you if you let it. The fact was, however, that it was making good points. Still, I couldn't help feel like this was just a programmed conversation. I asked Edward to turn the music back on and continued walking. Four hours later, the cluster had fully risen in the sky. A million stars dazzled in the air. The insect-like organisms were not as abundant this time around, but I kept the repeller on anyway. Edward and I had only exchanged the occasional mission conversation during that time. In fact, it was mostly uneventful until he suddenly interrupted the music. Mark. Yeah? I am detecting wide-scale gravitational anomalies. Where? I asked, picking up my pace a little. In all directions. Just then, I saw movement far off to the left. At first, it looked like something huge was growing out of the ground, but then I realized it was the ground. A large swath of grass and soil lifted up in the air, seemed to hang there for a moment, and then crashed back down. I heard the rumble it caused several seconds later. Was that one of the anomalies? I asked, beginning to jog. Yes. I began to see more and more of these events. It seemed like the rules of gravity were momentarily twisted. Sometimes the ground would simply ripple, sometimes it would slowly rise and collapse. And then there were the moments when the grass and soil appeared to fling itself into the air. I saw one chunk of dirt and rock the size of a city block fly so high in the air that I almost lost sight of it. The friction created as it moved through the atmosphere ignited flames that surrounded it, leaving a tail of orange flame trailing behind. There were micro-anomalies too. Edward was the first to notice, of course. I am detecting anomalies of varying sizes, he said. Some of them are only a few microns wide. I knew Edward could detect the rise of my heart rate. While the prospect of getting pummeled by large sections of rock was not something I welcomed, there was the more sinister danger of a micro-anomaly ripping through a vital part of my anatomy. Or maybe I might get turned inside out, which would have been slightly less enjoyable than getting crushed by a small mountain. I just had to keep moving and hope I made it to the ship in one unmolested piece. By the time I made it back to the forest, rogue gravitational anomalies were beginning to shred the surface of the planet. There was a horrific roar of trees snapping and crunching all around me. Through clearings in the canopy, I could see the occasional fireball falling to the ground, flying overhead or sailing into space. I didn't need Edward to tell me they were happening with increasing frequency either. Smoke billowed from random places all around me, apparently the result of one of these flaming chunks. Edward suddenly called out to me. A large object is approaching from directly behind you, he said, and I had just enough time to run a few paces and dive. There was a screaming whistle sound, followed by the crack of dozens of branches and the final crash of the projectile. Fire erupted behind me, and I had to scramble to avoid falling branches and flaming debris. I stood up and looked at where I had just been standing. Trees thicker around than me were left shattered and burning. I absently felt my torso, checking for injuries. Thanks, Edward. You just saved me. You should keep moving toward the ship, was all he said, and I couldn't have agreed more. A short time later, I was climbing over a downed tree when I felt a disturbingly familiar sensation like I was falling. Only I wasn't falling, at least not down. I started lifting off the ground with astonishing speed, smashing into branches from the underside. 
instinct told me to grab onto something and quick. Everything around me rushed toward the sky, including my legs once I managed to grasp onto a thick branch. I sort of hung upside down for a moment, looking down at the sky and then up to the ground. Every loose branch, small plant, and layer of topsoil had fallen up to the sky, but the massive roots of the tree held it in the ground. Then, just like that, gravity corrected itself and I went plummeting through the branches again. I slammed into the ground and unfortunately for me, the softer topsoil was gone. It knocked the wind out of me. I paused briefly before I got back to my feet, dodging the occasional branch and rock that rained down all around me. The ground was dark and barren. The trees looked freshly pruned and the down tree I tried to step over was completely gone. There was no telling how far away it landed. Slowly getting my breath back to me, I continued for the ship. Mark, Edward said a few minutes later. Yes, Edward, I said, not slowing down. We are now within minimal operational range of the ship. Does that mean you can control it? I asked. I have minimal control of all automated systems. Can you pair up the engines and life support? Yes. Good, do it. Acknowledged, he said. And just then I heard the horrible screaming whistle of incoming debris. Is that going to hit us? No, but stop moving forward. I obeyed immediately and saw it coming in from the right. A fireball roared as it tore through the forest, igniting a swath of trees in front of me. I was safe, but the entire forest in front of us was now in flames. I stood there thinking about the ship on the other side. We're trapped, I murmured. Trapped, Edward asked. Unless you can find a way through that wall of fire. We are within range of the ship's transporters. What? We're that close? We are outside the recommended range, but well within the maximum range. An uneasy feeling settled over me like a bright spotlight. I could hear the massive crash of debris, see trees shattering, and smell the forest fires happening in all directions. The ground I stood on trembled knowingly. This was a doomed place, and I knew I would be too if I didn't get out of here. I thought about my dead crewmates. Mark, Edward said, the transporter has locked onto us. Should I activate it? I paused, closed my eyes, and took a deep breath. <sighs> yes, I said, opening my eyes. This mission made me rediscover both my fear and my fascination for transporters. And it wasn't necessarily because I'd witnessed the ensigns vanish so suddenly. I'd always been afraid of and fascinated by them. They're quick, they're painless, they relocate you more efficiently than any other form of transportation, and the only side effect is a weird sensation of time lapse. Okay, maybe that isn't the only side effect. A rare percentage of organisms will have problems afterward, permanently and inexplicably changed. People have hypothesized that interference with the signal is what leads to these problems. I tend to agree, but it's not always the fault of the technology. It wasn't the transporter that failed on our ship, it was the power. I remember reading about one guy who intentionally put himself in a transporter loop because he thought it would allow him to live forever. It worked for several months before someone discovered what he'd been doing, but when they found his lab, he wasn't there. I think his power failed too. I felt consciousness return to me, and I looked around. I was back in the ship. So, I thought, that's it. I survived and my crewmates didn't. 
just like that. An alarm went off, pulling me out of contemplation. Geologic activity has increased tenfold in the past few seconds, Edward said. We must evacuate the planet immediately. I know, I said, moving to the front of the ship. Believe me, I know. I made it less than a meter away from the pilot's seat when the ship suddenly lurched to the side, slamming me up against the wall. We have been impacted by a large object, said Edward, but the shields are holding. Great, I said, getting up off the floor. Turn on the inertial dampeners before I get splattered against the wall. Inertial dampeners activated. The ship suddenly felt very serene, even with all the alarms going off. I sat down in the pilot seat and began readying it for liftoff. Geologic instability is now critical, Edward said. We must evacuate immediately. I know, Edward! I yelled, just as another alarm went off. The altitude warning. The ship is falling. I grabbed onto the controls and fired the engines to get away from the ground. It was collapsing all around us. And for just a moment, I worried what might cause the ground to fall. I really didn't know, and I didn't have time to find out. All I knew was how to pilot that ship away from that planet. Or so I thought. The ship rolled as it lifted off the ground, one side dragged downward by gravitational flux. I straightened the ship out just in time to slam it into the side of a large piece of land. We were now 50 meters in front of and below where we had been a few seconds earlier, falling into the crust of the planet through hills of crumbling rock. The gravity shifted again, negating my piloting and tossing the ship around like everything else that fell around us. I think we're in trouble! The planet is geologically unstable. Achieving escape velocity is impossible at this speed. I'm painfully aware of that! The ship bucked and rolled and dove as I attempted to pilot it through the massive chunks of debris. But concern had already turned into fear, and fear was threatening to become dread. There was no way I could pilot through this. I'd flown up dozens of planets, countless times, but they'd all had stable gravity field. Mark. What is it? I said as I fought with the controls. There is a 78% chance that I can safely pilot this craft into escape velocity. I paused only a second, and the ship rocked as it scraped up against a massive wall of rock. Faith in a computer is a risky thing, but given the situation, I didn't have much choice. There was no way I was going to be able to get us out of here. Fact. We were hundreds of meters lower than we were a few moments before, and we just kept descending. I said, Okay, do it, Edward. Get us out of here. I felt the controls stop responding to me, and I pressed myself back into the seat. Edward grew silent, several systems shut down, and the engines fired to full strength. I held on to the armrest and watched the main view screen. Rock, dirt, plants, and now magma were everywhere. Gusts of atmosphere whooshed up all around the ship, and gravitational anomalies warped space-time. I knew that any second the whole world would come squeezing in and grind us into our constituent molecules. But as it happens, Edward was a damn good pilot. More than that, he was a fantastic pilot. He slipped around blind corners, dodged debris before it changed directions, and surfed the same erratic waves of gravity that were pulling the planet apart. It took several tense minutes, but eventually we emerged from below ground level and started ascending through the atmosphere. I took the opportunity to look around at what was happening to the planet. How could I not? 
Edward was in control of the ship. The planet appeared to be eating itself. The first thing I noticed was that every tree that still remained seemed to be on fire. Smoke billowed like a dark river flowing skyward, while the surface was being completely ripped to shreds. Newborn valleys descended into rivers of fresh magma, new mountains rose out of the rock, and every ounce of water on the planet was turning to gas. The atmosphere was ablaze with all of the activity. Everything except my ship, safely protected by the shields, was scorched by heat. The mountain range I'd partly climbed earlier was gone. In its place was a massive ocean, which had begun to stretch lazily out into space. At the same time, the sky grew darker as the atmosphere also lost interest in the dying world. Edward masterfully navigated through the decaying gravity fields and managed to escape the pull of the planet. Except for the nearby sun and the Hercules cluster, the sky faded to black. I brought up a rear view image on the view screen. The planet wasn't spherical anymore. It was warped, crumpled, and torn to pieces. Large sections were breaking off and drifting into space. The glowing liquid of the mantle was spewing out of a thousand holes, some the size of a sea. I could no longer see oceans or atmosphere or anything that might have been the product or producer of life. The planet didn't explode, it didn't implode, and it didn't just die. Gravity twisted it, churned it, and cast it into space in trillions of pieces, the largest of which might form a chain of planetoids in a billion years. Trin no longer existed. And the worst part of it all, I realized later, was that I didn't know why.